Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary, and you have just eight days to register and attend our live podcast taping in Palm Beach, Florida, next Wednesday, April 6th. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast for details. If you haven't done so already and you are in South Florida, what else do you have to do next Wednesday but come hear us, see us, listen to us, meet us, uh, commune with us, uh, be in fellowship with us? Like, uh, come on, you know, you go, you golf enough. Come, come, come be, come be enlightened in Palm Beach uh, next Wednesday. And by we, I mean executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, there's a lot going on, uh, but I am uh, my mind is clouded uh, by uh, the bread and circuses, meaning the Will Smith slaps Chris Rock and the world goes insane uh, moment of, um, you know, around 11 p.m. on Sunday night. And. Uh, it's not just because I'm pop culture crazy and pop culture obsessed and all of that. I am I I am finding it very hard to pay that much attention to an enormous spate of news that we will get to in a minute. But I am wondering why this is like, I mean, yes, we don't ordinarily see live on television in front of, you know, uh, tens of millions of people. One of the most famous people in the world slapping one of the other most famous people in the world and it being an entirely spontaneous and unplanned event led that followed by rageful yelling and, you know, basically everybody's jaw on the planet Earth dropping. And so it's it's very unfamiliarity. It's the fact that it's an entirely novel incident is what news is, right? News is something new and it's, it, is a, it is a thing that, you know, it's something that has happened that has never happened before is by definition news. And when it involves famous people, it becomes twice as newsworthy. But I'm wondering whether... Um, this just comes as a welcome diversion from the fact that, uh, you know, all the news of the last, uh, you know, two years has been so terrible that this is on the one hand terrible and has all sorts of interesting, potentially interesting cultural applications, but is in fact meaningless. It is a news event that is meaningless. It's not meaningless to Will Smith. It's not meaningless to Chris Rock. It's not meaningless to, you know, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. But who cares about any of them when it comes right down to it? We don't know them. They're not people in our lives. They are people who are in our pseudo lives. And so we can study, we can have a conversation about it. It's like the ultimate thing about how everyone in the end can have a conversation about the weather, because the weather is a topic that is not fraught. And all the fraught things that could be could have been involved in this, if it had been a cross-racial incident, if it had been, you know, if it had been more violent, if there had been uh, you know, if if other people had gotten involved, if, uh, you know, I, I don't know what all all the kinds of things that might have complicated it so that it was not just a thing that could be talked about without it implicating very much of anything else is a relief. It's a relief to have a meaningless event for us to all chew over. Is that what it is? Christine, what do you think? Well, I was actually thinking that it's it, it it speaks to one of the things that's been a sort of theme on this podcast for for several years about the decline of institutions. Because the little nugget of news that I that I saw this morning about it is that you know the academy announced yesterday that it's going to sort of 
look into this, kind of do an investigation into it or whatever it is they do. Um, but they also noted that in the moment, this, this institution that puts on this big event once a year, after the slap happened, they were all kind of paralyzed. They didn't know what to do. Like the people who were in charge of the show kind of panicked. And although some of them clearly wanted to escort Will Smith out of the out of the place, they knew he was he was going to be receiving this Oscar later or likely was. And so they just froze. And I, to me, that was one of those things where it's like we've had this experience with so many uh, cultural, political and social institutions in the last decade where just at the moment where there's pressure applied, they panic and they can't act and they don't know what to do. And I think. There would this would have been a totally different narrative arc for the story if they had immediately removed him from from the uh, auditorium and then some as you said yesterday someone else had just accepted the award on his behalf and then it was dealt with in a kind of professional way but I just that's what struck me uh, about it I mean look Will Smith is, issued an apology uh, last night that was direct directly apologized with no excuse making to Chris Rock for his behavior that's good that's a good that's the right thing to do um, but. People are still mulling over what it should all mean. And there were a lot of defenders of, of acts of violence, uh, this public act of violence. I, somebody also pointed out that in Will Smith's own autobiography, he talks about how searing and emotionally scarring it was to see his own father hit his mother, I believe. That was like, mm -hmm. like so he's he's someone who grew up in a household where, where violence was uh, a fact of life, too. So it's... I think there are a lot of ways into this story and a lot of people's interests are converging on this shocking moment. But for me, I was also surprised that the Academy couldn't figure out how to deal with it in the moment on a live TV broadcast. That's sort of what they're supposed to be able to do. Abe, got any thoughts here? Well, yeah, I'm, in hearing your um, sort of talking about it as a diversion from the bad news, it, it, it struck me. Has there been um, a frivolous news story in a few years you know there used to be these sort of minor non-political things that would somehow catch on somehow because they were yeah literally they the were entire juicy. trump administration was that but we but don't know boy, what the president like, thinks about the slap but that was that, but that was is an unknown condition that four years right. ago for the last four years would have been impossible to avoid that's true but but that's but that's just it i mean it the politics and the, politics and the trivial were had become so intertwined for years. That's a very good point. And yeah. this is entirely separate. Right. I mean, yeah, there were there have been I mean, I, I can't think of what they are, but by definition, frivolity is evanescent, right? You don't because of the frivolity, you can't remember it ends up not being memorable. You know, it's like that whole thing about Twitter controversies. The if if somebody creates a controversy on Twitter, the thing that they should do is immediately go limp, go silent. Don't feed the flame, like, because it'll go out. There'll be another one three minutes later, and no one will ever remember what the Twitter controversy was. You, if you are involved in one, you, you only, um, can only exacerbate it by feeling like you need to have the last word or continue it or something like that, because it is discontinuous and not very serious, um, but yeah, it's an interesting question about sort of frivolity. I mean, you think about the the the, the 2010s, like there was a lot of frivolity, you know, or weird events um, in the, you know, there was like the balloon boy hoax and uh, I don't know the, and then even weird sort of internet driven meaningless things that sort of seize everybody's imagination, you know, like what color is the dress, <laughs> you know? I mean, this was I, also an expression of uh, a, perhaps a curated media diet. Because if you're to 
survey the landscape on the left, this whole episode is pregnant with meaning about race and class and the intersection of uh, you know how how these how these two uh, very different lifestyles uh, you know interact and you know, what their professional backgrounds are and whether there's merit to this claim and an honor based culture. I mean, this is there's a lot of people who are trying to make this into a profound philosophical event because that's what they do for every event imbue it with the kind of meaning that it doesn't necessarily have conveying both their sophistication as analysts people who analyze cultural events and also an effort to get you to click that's the business model it's not a business model that everybody in the country who saw it or or saw a version you know either saw it live or saw it after the fact um has their jaw drop it's like watching a train wreck it's like watching a fist fight in front of you or you know a fight on the street if you're walking down the street and two people get into a fight like you freeze and watch it and you can't quite believe it's happening and i understand that 100 years ago men fought all the time like that's a good like that's boy one once upon a time people were punching each other all the time then i've been listening to some podcasts that sort of deal with this and again it's sort of an interesting cultural difference like sure you know people say like yeah you know if you're in a bar you know, people get into fights all the time. So fine. I don't, I'm not really like a bar attendee, but I'm really not a bar attendee at places where people get so drunk that it's like a John Ford movie where people are, you know, punching each other into the, you know, into the glass mirror behind the bartender. And then everybody gets up and laughs, you know, like that's not my experience. So people do have different levels of experience with the, you know, with the use of violence as a sort of casual or emotional outlet i mean i would say this the only thing i would say which again is not has no larger social context is it looked to me like uh this was not the first time that will smith had slapped somebody like if i were gonna slap somebody i would be pretty incompetent at it okay like you know it was unfamiliar unfamiliar physical gesture pulling my arm back so you know like i would not that would not be something that I would know how to do efficiently, quickly, and with the intended effect. And that was a very, um, you know, it was a perfectly staged act of look, aggression. Look, he played Ali. I'm sure he trained for, you know, he's probably done a lot of, and he's done movies in which he he's he's done hand-to-hand stuff. And I mean, those guys train for those roles and I'm sure some of it sticks and they, you know. That didn't that part didn't surprise me. Uh, I will say to, to Noah's point yesterday about how this this immediately launched. It was like the event that launched a thousand you know annoying takes. Jamel Hill wrote this piece in The Atlantic, which was like, you know, white people and black people are having different conversations about this and then ha- is forced at some point to acknowledge a poll that said, actually, the majority of white and black people agree he probably shouldn't have slapped this guy. <laughs> like, it, it's just funny that the, the forced um Trying to make this about race seems to me to be the least interesting part of it. Um, This was the first Academy Awards that had an all black production team. There was a lot of effort gone into like making sure everything was, you know, all all the boxes were checked for identity politics so that every, you know, it it all looked like America or whatnot. And uh, and she was lamenting the fact that, you know, she thinks that this is going to make black people look bad and oh they're always expected to behave and you know i want to tell you what really what people think about this but her piece kind of fizzled in part because it's really about individual behavior and all the stuff we were talking about this morning and yesterday about the decline of civil society like how are people behaving in public what do they th- think the expectations are for their behavior 
And then with the overlay, obviously, of celebrity entitlement here. But yeah, you know, so Noah, I just wanted to say your your prediction about bad takes is just like was completely accurate because they just continue to <laughs> emerge. Like predicting the sunrise. You know, the we've skipped somehow the the most obvious and in a way most delicious thing about this, which is that, of course, you know, Hollywood loves to lecture and moralize Americans about their behavior and right and wrong and abuse and and cruelty in the world. And, you know, like like Will Smith's acceptance speech right after was all about how he's a vessel of, for, of love and everything. And it's just it is. Uh, actually sort of wonderful to see once yet again the the sort of hypocrisy of, of Hollywood as embodied by Will Smith. I think he's a f- fair embodiment of it and and the Academy's inability to to do anything in the wake of this. You know, I mean, I, it's an interesting thing about the mytholo- myth- mythologizing of violence versus in Hollywood terms versus what actually happens when 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 violence occurs. So there's a there's a famous story. This is one of the guys who created the image of the sort of like happy, fun violence that just, you know, is hilarious is I mentioned before, John Ford, the director was the most decorated director in Hollywood history. I think he won five Oscars and in three or four different movies, including the quiet man and Donovan's reef and stuff. He's one of these guys who stages kind of like the hilarious punch battle where John Wayne punches and somebody else punches somebody. And then the third person slides somebody down the bar. And then at the end, everybody laughs and just has such an incredibly fun time. So John Ford was an incredibly nasty person, very unpleasant. You know, he was a genuine artist. He had the most remarkable cinematographic and storytelling cinematographic eye and storytelling, you know, short cinematic shorthand. But he was just a lousy person, really mean to people. And um, he uh, was making Mr. Roberts in like 1954 with Jimmy Cagney and, and Henry Fonda. And he was awful. He was also a drunk. So um, Jimmy Cagney, he's really nasty to Jimmy Cagney. Jimmy Cagney says, you know, leave me alone. What's the matter with you? All of this. And then Henry Fonda, who was a very you know, uh, a very like um, withdrawn person emotionally, apparently, and and very taciturn and stuff. And um, but it was his play like he'd started on Broadway. He he was the producer of it like this was his product, really. And Ford was just being terrible to him. And he said to him something like, you know, you have to stop behaving this way. And Ford punched him in the face. Ford punched uh, Henry Fonda in the face and then was so humiliated by his own actions that he took to his bed and then he they made up a story about how he needed gallbladder surgery and he left the movie. He left the movie in the middle of production and was replaced by somebody else because when when people... So he is the guy who created the idea that punching somebody else can be all in good fun. But when he actually did it himself, it was a shattering event for his own self-esteem and his own. And Hollywood does this all the time. Like, you know, people in Hollywood are themselves creations of the dream factory. And maybe Will Smith didn't think that he was actually slapping Chris Rock. You know, maybe it's all cosplay. Like, 
he yeah, like you say, he trained as Ali, so he like shadow punched people. I don't know. There's something very weird that had happened in in show business terms. I mean, I heard somebody on a, I think Bill Simmons on his podcast say something about how you know you see this kind of thing in sports where people in high tension, you know, like they're very adrenalized and something happens and then they get into a fight. Uh, you know, they the guy runs and someone throws a, a a bean ball and then they run out and they have a fight on the field or or in football people go at each other and all of that, but not at moments of triumph. That's what's interesting. Like this was Will Smith's night. He was reasonably assured he was going to win this award that he'd been going for forever. He was adrenalized and like hepped up and all of this. And, and it, and it triggered something monstrous in him rather than something positive. Whereas the, in, in the world of where people just compete all the time, like they only lose it when things are going badly for them. I don't know what any of this means, but it is psychologically interesting and it's interesting about show business and it is interesting about how, uh, you know, even in show business where there are no rules and no guardrails um, anymore, you're right. Like they don't have, what does it mean that the Academy is reviewing the incident? What's to review? The entire planet saw it live. There's nothing to review. All they have to do is figure out what, what they can do to save their own face, you know, and, and, and there's nothing to be done. What happened, happened, you know. What are they going to do? Make sure that somebody else doesn't punch somebody else at an Oscars? Of course, no one's going to punch somebody else, some, somebody at another Oscar. Well, they could withdraw the award, right? Well, I mean, that, yeah, but if they're going to withdraw that award, then they're not going to withdraw Roman Polanski's award. Oh, no, I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I agree. And Woody Allen's awards. I mean, like, there are people, or, you know, I don't know, Harvey Weinstein won like 80 Oscars. Have they rescinded Harvey Weinstein's Oscars? I, I don't know if he won 80. I mean, he won at least one himself for Shakespeare in Love. Um, so, you know, has, has, has that. I mean, so you go down that road and then you're rescinding everybody's Oscar. You know, <laughs> I mean, so I, I don't know. It's a very. Uh, so I'm sorry. Noah said he managed to avoid even paying attention to this. Uh, we, we took. Absolutely no labor or effort on my part either. I just, this is just not part of anything that I pay attention to. <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of news out there. We'll okay. Well, it. we'll, okay. We <laughs> should, we should, we should, we should get to that then because there is so much. <laughs> there is so much. So we have, let's just go down the list of things. Okay. We have uh, Biden releasing a budget that is apparently designed to do something to bail the water out of the sinking Democratic boat by, by, shifting a little bit closer to the center than the uh, build back better plan uh, was designed to be. Uh, we have um, a judge in California saying that uh, it is like, he believes it is likely that Trump committed a felony on January 6th. I don't know quite what effect that has that it's in a legal document but it's i think the first time that somebody outside of the electoral political system who is involved materially in this case has directly said that the president is guilty was likely given the evidence he's seeing may be guilty of felonies not that it means anything that he says it it has no you know has no larger standing and uh we've got ten thousand different things with ukraine and what am i missing well joe biden had a press conference yesterday oh yes um, yes, which made everything worse typically. <clears throat> so, oh, and, where do yeah. you want to go? We did the so, budget, we no, did the I'm doing the spin. And, and we're going to spin the 
spin the wheel of fortune. You pick the issue you want to start with. All right, let's do Biden. Okay. Because he went. That was the uh, one I didn't mention. Right. So, well, you get, well no, you did because he's just Joe Biden generally being terrible. Uh, yeah. So he had this press conference in um, several disastrous press conferences or just speeches rather in Poland. Um, one where he was, he said, you know, to the troops that, you know, you'll see all the humanitarian horrors when you're there in Ukraine. And then the following day where he talked about regime change in Russia and uh, America reserving the right to use chemical weapons preemptively and a variety of other kind of jarring admissions. And he took uh, to the podium yesterday and tried to defend himself uh, or was asked to defend himself. Uh, And despite the slavish efforts of the press corps to ingratiate themselves with this president who's had more foreign policy experience than any other of his predecessors, which is absolute nonsense, doesn't he not know the extent to which foreign actors view the statements of a president as an expression of his government's policy preferences? Uh, to which Joe Biden said, no, uh, he's not taking anything back. He's not walking anything back. Um, he's merely expressing a personal preference, uh, which is essentially, I suppose, that we live in a world without Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. Um, but that's not America's policy. That's not his government's policy. That's just him riffing. He's just being honest with you, man, talking off the cuff, right? Um, that's unlikely to make anything better. And it just demonstrates the extent to which he's very blasé, callous, and unserious about the weight of the office he occupies in a very familiar way compared with his predecessor. Also, we got news yesterday that Joe Biden probably wasn't just riffing when he was talking to uh, U.S. service personnel, I think of the 82nd Airborne in Poland, um, talking about, you know, you'll see all these horrors in Ukraine when you're there. Not that American troops are, are deploying there, but apparently he may have, uh, revealed the extent to which there's a covert program to train and equip Ukrainian soldiers in Poland, um, which uh, everybody in, in the NATO alliance is calling all of this escalatory. France is walk, running away from this president. Emmanuel Macron called it escalatory and, and said that this is you know a problem. And you saw in Joe Biden's little notes, he took notes. I thought we were Poland. all united. What's important is that we're all United. That's the most important thing. NATO has never before been this united. That's just so what he, he that was is his causing answer. disunity. That was his answer saying. to the question. The question on his little notepad was all about Macron, and it was kind of covered by his thumb. You couldn't see all of it, but it was about Macron and disunity within the alliance. And his response was no. And I'm not making this up. It's on. It was a little bullet point that just says no. NATO has never been more united. No period. NATO has never been more united. Okay, I want to read you guys an email that I got from a friend of the podcast, which I think is interesting and is worth discussing in relation to the way Biden has behaved over the last three days and maybe since really before the invasion. Um, Listening to the podcast discussion of Biden's statements, this is yesterday, something occurs to me. Biden has the same problem that Trump had in that he talks about the United States' power and responsibility as though he were an outside observer. When he says that Putin must not be allowed to remain in power, he forgets that the natural implication is that we, the United States, should do something about it. Throughout the entire Russian invasion, Biden and his team have acted like color commentators, making predictions about what Russia might do and then taking credit for getting predictions right, as if that were some great victory. Like Trump, Biden seems to think that his main job on the global stage is offering color commentary, rather than leading the most powerful nation in the world. What do you guys make of that as an analysis? That's a fine analysis. Um, it, it 
it's not great. I mean, it suggests if they, if what, what he's identifying as true is really, you know, an animating, a motivating factor for the president and the last president. Um, it's not, it's not good uh, policymaking or statecraft. Uh, it's rather, it could be quite disastrous in fact, because what the president did by saying, by signaling that regime change is his preference, uh, changes the terms that Kremlin, the Kremlin understands uh, are America's strategic objectives here, a, a, an end game to this conflict that is resolved in a satisfying way for the Atlantic Alliance and the Prima Inter Paris uh, member of that alliance, Washington. Um, all of a sudden, the, the stakes have changed. The terms have changed in a way that is wholly raises the the stakes for for Ukraine, perhaps or Russia, to an existential level. In a way that that just isn't shared by us. We don't have the kind of urgency. Um, associated with the stakes raising, um, which makes it rather dangerous. Okay, let me now read to you from um, David Rothkopf. David Rothkopf was the uh, one-time editor of um, which uh, Foreign Policy. Uh, he uh, is a columnist with the Daily Beast. Very self-satisfied, self-righteous, um, and, um, and uh, a, a complete toady. Uh, has become a complete sort of uh, Biden and Democratic foreign policy toady, probably because he's looking for a job. I, I'm reading this string because I think it's interesting as a reflection of where you have to go if you want to defend Biden's behavior over the last two days. Uh, this is a tweet storm. What an embarrassing display by the White House press corps. Over and over and over, they asked the president about his comment that Putin should not remain in power. He said he was expressing his moral outrage and not singling a policy change. His answer could not be clearer, but they did not want an answer. They did not want to accept the story at its face value. They wanted a controversy. Somehow they seemed to feel that it was more important to badger POTUS over nine words that expressed the view of every sentient moral being on the planet than it was to focus on the tens of thousands of deaths caused by Putin. Somehow they felt that the story was how the president might have hurt the feelings of a war criminal rather than it being that we finally had a president who would call out Putin and stand up to him. So Nobody you have to cares go about to Putin's feelings. That's right. just ridiculous. No, but I mean, you have to go to, he couldn't have been clearer uh, because he said, I, I'm outraged, but uh, I, you know, he shouldn't remain in power. I'm the most powerful person on the face of the planet, but uh, this is not a, I, I, my outrage does not inform my policy. So my moral compass that you elect me in part as a president to be governed by um, uh, plays no part in, in my actions here. And this is something that a kind of uh, a figure in the liberal foreign policy establishment that wishes to align himself with Biden, probably so he can get the policy planning job at the State Department or something like that, uh, because that is the sort of thing that people do. Nonetheless, I mean, you have to twist yourself into a knot the way the way it seems to be OK for Biden to say, I wasn't saying anything but expressing my moral outrage as though the president's moral outrage has no policy implications. Uh, but it, for Biden, I think it doesn't. It's the same way that whenever he was pressed during both during the presidential uh, election season and then in the first months of his administration on any domestic issue, particularly COVID, he would lapse into. But I'm an empathetic guy. I, I have empathy. He waved his empathy flag. He does the same thing with foreign policy. It becomes like this is a moral 
moral quandary, you know, this is my moral outrage, which he seems to think is divorced from policymaking. And in his administration, it appears to be because there are a lot of moral outrages going on right now in Afghanistan as a result of the fact that the Taliban is in charge again. But that's not our problem anymore, because he decided the moral outrage should be the idea of keeping troops in, in Afghanistan. It's the same thing here. He's constantly invoking his moral outrage as justification after the fact for policy bungles. And I just think people aren't buying it anymore. I mean, the press corps continues to be fairly uncritical when he walks these back. There's a million of them. The, the, the most recent one domestically was that he uh, the, the White House claimed that he, you know, caught some of the uh, Katanji Brown Jackson uh, hearings. And then he blurts out, actually, I didn't have any time to watch any of it. Like, what is going on? What? Who's well, watching? <laughs> I mean, you know, this all heightens the sense not only that he's merely giving um, color commentary, but that he's not connected to the decisions that are being made. You know, it's like it's like he's f- hovering, floating above the administration and everyone else is doing things and they know what's going on. And he thinks he has a handle on what they're doing. So then he sort of sum- sums it up incorrectly for the rest of us. And then they all have to say, oh, no, no, you missed. But as if he's the spokesman. I mean, there was a nice, healthy 24 hour news cycle in which a whole lot of people that I remember not being very jazzed about regime change got really excited about regime change. Oh, yeah. How morally that was something what a moral imperative it is. Yeah. Suddenly. Yeah. But, you know, uh, uh, Biden says he can't remain in power. Yeah. And then uh, a lot of people are suddenly, you know, he said the truth. He can't remain in power. He can't remain in power. Oh, really? Okay. Well, how do you stop? How do you, how do you effectuate that? You know, I mean, it's interesting because not to get self-referential, but I have this piece in the April commentary called neoconservatism of vindication. And I say that, you know, the funny thing is that everybody is always accusing neoconservatives of a kind of utopian desire to change the world in, in certain ways. And that this is a misunderstanding of what whatever the neoconservative tendency is, that it's actually got a relatively modest framework, that it's about deterrence and that the actions, if you if you successfully de- practice deterrence or deploy deterrence, both in uh, you know, cr- criminal justice matters and in and, and foreign policy terms, what you can do is prevent terrible things from starting. Because once they start, once they're in place, you have to deal, you have to manage them as, as active uh, going concerns. And it wasn't like, you know, Ronald Reagan ever said, you know, they're the, surely they can't remain in power. He said they were, he said the Soviets were an evil empire he said he even sort of expressed a certain kind of confidence that one day this this evil would sort of pass from the earth but he didn't say i'm going to do it or that you know in the midst of a specific hot conflict that that one end goal of it should be that they would be removed from power because it was a bridge too far like that was something that you wouldn't say it was irresponsible and i i'm i'm just struck by the fact that yeah so a biden can say something reckless and then he gets defended by people who have now spent 10 years trying to distance themselves from the regime change policies of the Bush administration that a lot of them initially favored. And it's not that I, not that anybody sort of disagrees that it would be nice if Putin, you know, uh, didn't remain in power, but obviously the goal of, um, of, of achieving some kind of successful outcome in Ukraine cannot be 
linked to or the direct cause, the direct result of Putin's being removed from power. They're also trying to make a narrow distinction. Well, broad distinction, I suppose, but narrow in, in terms of argumentation that, well, there's a big difference between saying karmically that the arc of the moral universe should remove this guy from office and trying to implement that via regime change on the ground for invasion like like Iraq. There's a big difference between those two things. And yes, but that wasn't the entirety of the debate in late 2002, early 2003. It was about, well, what's coming up behind Saddam Hussein? What would the region become if he were if he weren't there, if even if he was removed from office by some stroke of history, uh, fortune? Um, is is this is this the, the uh, something that we should prefer uh, to the status quo that we're that we would be ushering in? Uh, and also, who is what's wh- what role do we have to play in this region? And and is is it our decision to to impose our moral values on this this these this culture and this people who have very distinct customs and habits and and pre- political preferences? All that has been lost in this very black and white moral argument about right and wrong, which I think, frankly, is valuable because I think we had a the, the debate over morals and right and wrong were, were relevant in 2003 and they're relevant here and now. But they're trying to change the terms of the debate in a way that kind of uh, risks revising the history of the debate around the Iraq war. Well, and it's also I, I just want to add that to this to this idea that he's I think Noah's absolutely right that they, they're focusing on these grand themes. I mean, he, it's almost like he's play acting as being a wartime president. Right. It's like this is what a wartime president does. He does this. He does that. He he speaks in these high tones. And and even even the speech over the weekend where he kind of there, there were echoes of Reaganite sort of phrasing and, and uh, moral speaking. The problem is he's not a wartime president. <laughs> We're not at war. We're involved in this conflict. And so his the actions and the behind the scenes diplomacy that's going on don't match the rhetoric. And he also doesn't seem to be committed to that rhetoric because, as you say, it's it's not really uh, the Democratic Party today's approach to foreign policy at all. So it's very confusing. I think that's another layer of the confusion about what our end goal is here and what the policy of this administration is. Our end goal here isn't that Putin be removed from office. This is this is the key right. element. And that was he concluded the speech with the this man cannot remain in power line, which, again, was apparently an, an ad lib, but it doesn't matter. It was the emotional climax of the speech. And that is not our goal. Our goal is to do what we can to uh, to help Ukraine retard this Russian invasion and what happens as a result of this, the possible success of that end goal is then out of our hands. Like, does it mean Putin falls? It could be that it could only happen if Putin falls, but it's still not our goal that Putin fall. That is Our goal has been ex- articulated as withdrawal to the February 24th positions. Right. Not even done. Not even the Crimea, real. Rev- yeah. Not even revoking the 2014 aggressions. Right. So then all of a sudden it's no longer that which is achievable, but something much more existential. And so what is America's goal? If you're in the Kremlin, do you even know what Washington wants anymore? No, because also if we could be if we could. But yeah, but but, you know, the excuse me, the other um, aspect of this, the other thing that that is terrible about his having misspoken is that it strengthens Putin at home. I mean, you know, Putin's been saying 
in in Russia and to anyone who will listen, this is what America this is what America really wants. This is what they're after. Long before the invasion, this absolutely. Is the national and, origin myth. And and instead of making him, uh, instead of uh, painting Putin as the as the paranoid that he is, he's now got some he's now got some evidence on his side out of the president's mouth. And it's not like Putin is unpopular in Russia. Yeah, and you know, again, I. I, I it's a weird position to be in because of course we would prefer that Putin pass from the scene. Although again, you don't of know, course. Who's, you know who follows him and whether that would be any better. It's like, we were all excited when Bashar al-Assad's father passed from the scene. And then there was Bashar who turns out to be as brutal, if not more brutal than Hafez al-Assad. So Basel tough to us that we got the optometrist who is perfectly willing to use chemical weapons and practice genocide even more viciously than his father did. So we don't really know that. But, you know, in the world of bad actors right now, Putin is a is a is a disastrously bad actor. Right. He has unquestionably done something, you know, over that, you know, hasn't happened in 75 years on the European continent and all of that. But there are 10 or 15 bad actors on the planet that we would particularly I mean, more than that, that we would prefer to see not in office anymore and stopping their depredations wherever they are and doing whatever they're doing. And this is where you're not supposed to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, as John Quincy Adams said, a line that has been much misunderstood. Like, we're not in Ukraine because we are in search. We want to destroy the Putin monster. We're in Ukraine because Russia, in we're not in Ukraine, but, you know, we are involved in this because Russia invaded Ukraine, and we are we are trying to help the Ukrainians reverse that fact. We're not there to get Putin. We're not there to do regime change in Russia. We are there now. Again, question then is how determined are we about that goal? If it turns out that that goal is unattainable without these secondary or tertiary steps, then probably we're not going to attain our goal because we're not going to get him out of power. Um, and which is another reason why you don't want to have Biden saying that, because he's then he's then raising the stakes so high that our involvement in this is going to end in failure based on the terms that the president lays out, not based on the terms of the actual conflict. And, you know, he also European leaders are right to run away from this on a very practical level because he's made it. They've had a hard enough time keeping communication lines open with Moscow as is. Um, now, for, for the Kremlin to hear that the West is is, is seeking regime change, um, it's going to make it that much harder. Anyway, uh, let me just uh, tell you that this all could give you a pain in the back. So let's 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 cure that pain in the back with the X chair. You know, it's got it's got that LMX technology patented. Can warm you up when you're cold. It can cool you down when you're warm. And that di that patented dynamic variable lumbar, the support for your lower back that you can put wherever you need it, changes your relation to your office chair, your desk, and the work that you do at it. You will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. Take my advice. Try the X chair for yourself. Risk free for 30 days. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com.
com. All right. So we've just done Biden. Now, where do we go? Noah? Budget where we go? or Eastman Trump? Uh, I guess Eastman Trump, because uh, who cares about the bud? Like, you know, the budgets, uh, as all, whenever you have a conversation about the, about the notional budget, you're making a mistake. <laughs> Because the budget will be whatever the hell it ends up being. Um, and it's right, usually well, just a continuing resolution. <laughs> but I'm still writing a blog on it. No, you know what I mean. I, I, I'm sorry. I've now everyone read Noah's blog later <laughs> on it. I don't mean to diss it. But um, so uh, judge in California says uh, it's basically his position that it's likely that Trump uh, in 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 collusion with John Eastman, uh, committed felonies, um, which raises an interesting question. The interesting question being, once again, why why did we on this podcast and others uh, hotly defend the idea that Trump needed to be impeached and a vote to remove him from office uh, for the January 6th events? Because he can't be prosecuted for felonies, as far as I'm aware. He was president of the United States. I know he's out of office. The, 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 the modality for dealing with a president's misbehavior in office is impeachment and removal. He was impeached. He wasn't removed. Am I missing something? Does that change now that it's two years out? It's still the event took place during his presidency. Anybody? I mean, I agree, but I, I'm more struck by that. I just find it strange for a judge to say someone's probably guilty of a felony. I mean, that's that that to me seems a, a kind of strange breach. Am I wrong? I mean, I, I'm not a you know, this is why I said I feel like this is a situation in which you need somebody who like, you know, deals with criminal procedure all the time to answer this question. Like, I think uh, don't people, you know, issue uh so here's what he said. Uh, the illegality of the plan was obvious, said the judge, whose name is, I'm sorry, let me find his name Carter, here, David, uh, David Carter. O. Carter of the Central District of California. Um, uh, it's uh, it, it, Judge Carter found the actions taken by Trump and, and John Eastman, the uh, law professor uh, who was advising him informally um, as a coup in search of a legal theory. I don't really know that you can call this a coup, uh, by the way, because it didn't. <laughs> so uh, a coup also has a, and it doesn't really have a definition exactly. Usually a coup involves the military. So I, I, calling it a coup is a very strange. So I think this is anyway. in, within this judge's remit because this is just a hearing about turning over these documents that the January 6th committee is seeking, right? So he says, this is not a criminal prosecution. This is not even a civil liability suit at most. This is a case. Uh, this case is a warning about the dangers of, quote, legal theories gone wrong, a powerful abusing public platforms and desperation to win at all costs. So this judge was asked to weigh in on competing legal theories and did so. He has okay. an implication in there that perhaps expand, extends beyond his remit. Um, but if he's he's been asked to weigh in on the validity of this legal theory, that's within within the purview of a, of a sitting judge. Right. And, you know, basically I, I think it's the case that, you know, when judges issue, you know, support for like search warrants or, you know, or the famous FISA court stuff, 
that they that they do so on the grounds that the information that they have gotten uh, strongly suggests that a crime has been committed that justifies the search, right, or justifies the the surveillance, that kind of thing. It's not just what was that standard in the FISA court that was that was breached. A high probability of something or other, like it it, it wasn't. Yeah, FISA just... courts are weird, but if you're just looking for no, probable I know. cause for any criminal right. warrant, then that's right. that's okay. a standard that you can usually right. meet as a competent right. prosecutor. Or competent. So probable cause, sense... probable cause isn't the same thing as saying a probable crime, right? No, but there was there's something again. I mean, now we're having now this is ridiculous, and we shouldn't even be talking if we don't know enough to talk about this, but. Judges do there. It's not that you presume guilt, but uh, you can presume criminal activity. I believe, you know, I mean, you, it, that's why it's, okay. you know, again, you're, 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 you're giving people the right to do a search because they have more evidence than just, I think, I don't like that guy's the cut of that guy's jib. Right. So uh, they, they are, and this is a civil proceeding, not a criminal proceeding. So it doesn't even matter what he would say in this regard, because he's not, uh, you know, that's not what he's examining anyway, but let, let's talk about Eastman for a minute, because there is a great ambiguity here. And this is something I did check with people who know better than I. Um, so Eastman says, here's a way that we can, you know, we can get Pence to, we can, we can reverse the results of the election. Pence can do this. Or, uh, we have alternate slates of electors. If he just delays and then you, you, you introduce Alabama instead of Arizona, or blah, 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 blah. And then you can get the count and, and Biden can be denied the, the 200 and whatever, you know, the, the, the number of delegates he needs and then blah, blah, blah. Um, so at what point does this become not just become John Eastman proposing a crackpot idea about how to, you know, about how to reverse the results of the election, writing a memo uh, that is part of his remit as an American citizen being allowed to express his, you know, his free rights of free speech and private, uh, you know, private communication and all of that. And at what point does it become a conspiracy? And, um, and, that's a very weird thing because it, it goes entirely to his state of mind. In other words, did he know that what he pro- was proposing was illegitimate and illegal? And was he nonetheless counseling the president to do it? Is even that illegal? I mean, it can be. Uh, people are people are indicted and, and even go to jail based on phone taps that where they're talking about conspiracies that they don't affect, right? I mean, uh, some of these terrorism cases involve, you know, uh, busting, uh, uh, busting a ring before it actually does anything based on what they say they want to do. Well, the, the, but the other, there's another part of this that I think we should bring into the discussion because it seems to be the point that the, a political point, not a legal point, which is a lot of this and a lot of the hype that this, this judge's ruling is, is getting is because Democrats want Merrick Garland to actually start to investigate Trump and bring, you know, bring the pressure to bear on Trump's behavior. And this has been a constant drumbeat. This is, I mean, I think lock him up is trending again on social media because the idea is they, you know, the Democrats feel like there has justice has not been served that the election, even though he did not win that election and all of his legal cases failed. Um, and, you know, more and more Americans are, are sick and tired of hearing about the stop the steal nonsense. 
Nevertheless, he needs to personally be punished for his behavior and the impeachment didn't do it. So they're looking, they want a criminal prosecution of Donald Trump. So that part of it, it that political argument is still very li- alive and well on the left and, and, and frustrating people who want to see Merrick Garland be the point person for that. So this, that is how a lot of this news was received by those folks. They, they see it as yet another example of why the Justice Department shouldn't be dragging its feet about going after Trump. I, again, am lost in the theory that says that Trump is open to criminal prosecution. I know he's I out agree. of office. <laughs> but, I know that he's out of yeah. office. We have, we have the case of Bill Clinton being pursued, not criminally, I don't think, but civilly by Paula Jones and others. But that was for conduct that predated his presidency. And then, and then he, uh, because he perjured himself or it was it was determined or he agreed to the idea that he had perjured himself in his statements to the um to the star you know to the to the star investigation um uh then that acknowledgement then he agreed to pay this 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 uh, settlement where he paid the fine and lost his law license and all of that but all of that was related to behavior before he was president this is directly about things that he did while he was in the White House. And um, this is uh, an interesting can of worms because I, I don't know. I mean, there is a lot of reason to believe that precedent and things that we want to be the case, like we want the president to be able to focus on policymaking. To, we see it right now with ukraine like there's a crisis going on and we would biden is not a very good president but he should at least have the running room to spend hours and hours a day focusing on ukraine and one of the reasons that we not just the constitution but also sort of precedent or ideas or the things that have said said by courts is the president shouldn't be living hassled by suit after suit after suit while he is president like it's distracting. We need him to be able to focus on his job. He's working for all of us. Leave him alone. Now, uh, granted, th- what people wanted, what Democrats and what people who hated Trump wanted was not to leave him alone, was to distract him, was to torture him with, you know, lawfare. But, um, you know, we're back in the what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Like if you're going to open up the possibility that the president can be indicted after he's president, for acts of things that he did while he was president rather than using the impeachment and the process outlined in the constitution, not very specifically, but nonetheless, that's actually very specific how the process works, I guess. But, um, you know, you're, 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 you're now ensuring that every president will be tormented by his, by the, by the out party using lawfare in every possible way. Um, that said, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe maybe what maybe what uh, Trump did in this, or maybe Trump isn't going to be guilty of conspiracy, and maybe Trump committed felonies, but will escape that because he was he was in fact indicted but not convicted of his behavior, right? Uh, in in the in the impeachment, but that doesn't that doesn't shield John Eastman, and that's where I'm interested, just as a matter of policy, about whether or not do 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 the Eastman's free speech rights and his ability to 
you know, express a theory of how to do something, does that rise to the level of a conspiracy? Because the only way it rises to the level of a conspiracy is if he knows that what he did is illegal. And if he and 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 I guess that then goes to another weird question, which is what if you say, yes, I guess this is, you know, technically this is illegal, but everything that happened in the United States over the last 10 years meant that the election was stolen, right? That's the superstructure idea of the stop the steal people is it doesn't matter whether it's Pennsylvania or whether it was Dominion voting machines or whether it was, there are 10,000 things that happened that have made, that gave the Democrats, you know, allowed the Democrats to seal, to seal the election. And, and, and it's legislation, it's state by state policy, it's COVID, it's this, it's that, it doesn't matter what it is. So therefore getting it back uh, because the, the election of Biden was illegitimate is the higher legality. But I, I, I never, I guess no one ever gets away with that, that idea, right? That we thought we were doing the right thing. So we needed to, but it is very Hollywood, of course. You know, you break the law because you are answering to a higher law or something like that. Although I guess if you answer to a higher law, you're also supposed to be willing to go to prison to defend your beliefs, right? You're supposed to, if you're going to, you know, I, it's so important to me that I'm willing to, you know, suffer the illegitimate regime's treatment of me uh, because I, 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 because I'm speaking to a higher power. But it'll be interesting to see because Eastman does have free speech rights, uh, even though he's an idiot and and is an ass, and what he did was disgusting. And if you defend him, you know, in my ear, in my, you know, in my hearing, uh, I'm gonna wag my finger at you and tell you that you're stupid but it is i just have to say it's one of the beautiful things about our country idiots have rights too i mean it's really it's it's something we can all rally around yes so do we have anything more to discuss we've done we've done eastman we've done biden we've done will smith we uh we didn't do the budget okay no give me two minutes on the budget and then we'll uh you just said it was boring and miserable and a waste of time I but now I feel guilty because you <laughs> want to write something on it. I am going to write something on it. Okay, so so it's not that it's boring. It's that in the end, when the president proposes a budget, the budget is interesting as a notional description of where he thinks policy is going. But the budget will be whatever Congress cobbles it together to be, and we're right. and and we basically have haven't had a budget for. 75,000 years anyway, we just had a series of continuing resolutions, but go ahead. I can't believe you're not making the Wheel of Fortune big money, big money joke when you're gonna, about enough. to discuss the budget, but go ahead. Yeah, it's just shy of six trillion. It's a statement of values and principles, of course, uh, <clears throat> but it's being described in the political press as a center-leaning budget, according to the New York Times, because it focuses on, it. it sort of leaves blank the Build Back Better stuff, which is in there, climate justice and uh, half a dozen other initiatives that we talked about for a year and a half that aren't really ever going to happen. But there's just, you know, they're notional and they're in this document. Why it's center center leaning, according to the Times, is because it focuses on deficit reduction and funding the Pentagon and funding law enforcement. Uh, That's really it. The deficit reduction is hilarious because it... Um, is financed by growth, which is something that Republicans always get laughed at when their budgets, uh, <laughs> the gaps in their budgets are financed by economic growth and the tax revenues that you generate from economic activity. 
but also a 20% minimum tax on billionaires that would tax unrealized gains if assets, uh, income assets fall beyond below a, a particular minimum. Um, this is hilarious. It's never going to happen. It should be laughed right out of Congress. The fact that we're even talking about this still when it was floated last year as a means of funding Build Back Better uh, by the very progressives in this in the progressive uh, caucus, that it was um, it faces a paradigmatic hurdle in the form of the fact that this money doesn't exist. And people sort of understand that paper wealth isn't real wealth. I mean, you really just have to convince yourself uh, of this reality that 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 paper wealth is realizable income and, and can be taxed like a capital gain. Um, because everybody understands that paper wealth isn't real. I mean, you just have to be a, the sentient human being aware of the 1920s to, to understand that that's all illusory wealth until you sell, until you get you know, your, your, your funds back from your investments. Um, so this is just sort of, a, again, a statement of principles, a silly one. And you don't hear a lot of progressives you know, wailing and moaning and rending garments and gnashing teeth over the center budget because it's not that. It is a statement of principles that aligns very closely to those of the, le of the left, just not exactly the pie in the sky promises they made over the course of 2021, which were very impolitic and impractical. Um, but it is not a center budget. It is a, a left-wing budget. It's just that the center has become so far to the right over the last year and a half that it looks like a center budget if you look at it through very crimson colored glasses. The Constitution of the United States in 1913 was amended to allow a tax on income. This proposal that we're reading about that is aimed at you know, a few hundred people with a lot of money is not a tax on income. It will therefore be real, ruled unconstitutional if it is ever passed into law almost immediately. As you it think? is not a tax on income. You think because you can tax a transaction. Yeah, but there is no transaction because they're, they're they're talking about taxing unrealized gains. Right. They're no, talking okay, about calculating right. yeah, no the taxation of unrealized yeah, right. gains, and there's no transaction. They it, it is it is the requirement that people estimate the level of their wealth and then be taxed at twenty percent of that estimate. That is not constitutional. Now, it uh, Congress can pass a law, and you I guess the Supreme Court could find that. Congress can pass it doesn't doesn't say in the Constitution that you can't tax unrealized gains, I guess, um, and therefore it could be deemed legal, but I doubt it. And so, you know, if you want to actually spend time debating something that is a science fictional notion, largely uh, given the given the contours of all past case law and the fact that it is a in direct violation of everything we understand by the by the literal definition of the word income in the phrase income tax um then we then we can do that you know it's very talmudic you know or 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 like medieval scholastic right i mean how many angels can that how much in how much revenue could you get from 400 billionaires uh if you could tax their unrealized gains and it would be really fantastic because it's not fair that they don't pay enough Although, of course, it's interesting because when we say they don't pay enough and maybe they don't pay enough, you know, in terms of some sense of cosmic justice, obviously every one of those people pays more into the tax system every year 
then almost the 99% of Americans will pay into the tax system in a lifetime. And they do that every year and will do it every year until they die um, in some form or other. That's actually the, that, that was why another thing that Biden said yesterday was, was ridiculous because he actually argued the opposite. He said that he had this whole statement about how I'm a capitalist. I can make a billion bucks. Great. But just pay your fair share of firefighter and a teacher pay more than double the tax rate that a billionaire pays. That's not right. That's not fair. So they're, they're actually, they are trying to pitch this as the little people are paying the most and they're really, really wealthy are paying the least by talking about rates, obviously. But uh, as you say, I mean, there, there are many, many Americans who don't pay taxes, income tax at all. No, no not many, the many, the majority, majority. Of yes. And now I believe last year, the calculation was that 57% of Americans paid no federal income tax. Now, they pay social security tax, they pay payroll taxes and they pay, you know, they pay state level, you know, they pay state income taxes often and they pay, you know, sales taxes and things like that. But they do not pay federal. And by the way, saying they don't pay income taxes, you know, the, the payroll tax is 14% of your income. So, um, you know, and some of that is not even capped. So that's a pretty significant tax right off the bat. But, um, yeah, 57% don't pay it. And like, if you have a billionaire who's only paying, you know, an effective tax rate of 8%, right? That's a colossal amount of money goes into the federal coffers, like from that 8%. And so what is the fair, you know, this is all abstraction. The whole point and of by this, the way, as, you, yeah. as you've noted earlier in the podcast, is to uh, insulate Democrats <laughs> who spent the last 18 months talking about Build Back Better from having any attachment to build back better because it's right. just a single line item in the budget for literally $2 trillion worth of programs that they wanted. It's still in there. It just doesn't have a price tag attached to it. So it's like, you can run away from it if you want, but then there's also stuff like uh, raising corporate in- uh, corporate tax rates, like by a two and a half points or something like that, which was also part of the build back better uh, discussion and was shot down by Democrats. Kirsten Cinema shot it down. So stuff is still in there. I want to conclude on a point. I wanted to bring this up yesterday, um, but I think it's just fascinating to think about, which is that uh, there's been polling in the last week. Some of this polling is really bad for Biden. But this thing where people say, what is the most important issue to them? And I think in the NBC poll, uh, uh, the coronavirus. Will Smith Smith is obviously the most important thing in the universe. And Uh, everything's changed many months after Sunday. But I think the coronavirus was in single digits. The issue that they're most concerned about, 5%, 3%, something like that. Um, uh, That's astounding. I mean, it's just an astounding fact that uh, basically it took one major news event. It took Ukraine. We didn't really understand. It took Ukraine, one major news event to, and of course, the the fact that the Omicron variant uh proved to be uh basically ineffectual for for the vaccinated um uh you know or not dangerous to the vaccinated um and here we are and we're not talking about it anymore um and yet you know what until april 19th you're still you still have to mask on on public transport and air and airplanes why why I mean, these people are crazy. Like the Democrats are, I mean, maybe the point is they're facing catastrophe anyway. You know, there's no putting lipstick on this pig. There's no, you know, 
They wanted to get out of being punished for COVID. They needed to do it last fall. Uh, and there's nothing they can do now. And the punishment will be whatever it's going to be. And they're, they're, they are tagged with being COVID hawks. And if that's going to kill them, that's going to kill them. Although some of these numbers are really strange because on the one hand, it only, it's only like 2% of Americans say it's their number one issue. And yet 60% of Democrats, some of these polls say they want to continue you know, mitigation measures like masking on subways and the masking of children. How do those numbers, how do those numbers reconcile? I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, Cause yeah, I, guess I don't, don't think they're it. strapping on their max masks and, you know, settling into. No, they're strapping other people into masks. Right. So that's well, the whole point about children. But like playing near children my God to pulled. the and just sinking into the water pleasantly. Like this budget, for example, is an yeah. effort to pull out of the tailspin. And, and I think they really think they can. They talk themselves into thinking they can. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, this is the last point. So uh, editorials and stuff, very, you know, Washington Post, New York Times are, you know, yelling at Republicans in Congress for killing the extra supplemental spending on COVID that Biden wanted a couple of weeks ago. Um. And I was just remembering that, Noah, you looked up in the budget or you looked up somewhere a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this, that there is still something like close to a trillion dollars that the Congress had authorized or, or appropriated for COVID spending that has gone unspent. It wasn't nearly that much, but there 800 was million or 800 lot, billion yeah. or some colossal sum of money. And they're, and they're, you know, um, that money is sitting there waiting to be used. And the idea is that we're, we're not going to do enough. Right. So they wanted 15.6 billion from Congress for vaccines, yeah. therapeutics, global mitigation programs. They couldn't get it. It just couldn't get it. And they couldn't get it in a standalone bill because COVID is a priority for all of 2% of the country. That's sort of how representative government works. Um, but yeah, the committee for responsible federal budget tracks COVID relief funds of which there have been 5.76 trillion appropriated over the course of the last two years, five trillion of which had been dispersed. So that's still, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars sitting around. And three quarters just, of a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars, I'm sorry, trillion dollars. <laughs> and if you look only at vaccine treatment and development and testing, monitoring, and research development, there's still about $14.5 billion of undistributed, undispersed funds. And yet the White House is out here crying poverty about vaccine no money for to distribute vaccines anymore can't get a booster into your arm we just don't have the money they're still saying this and i i don't know but i'm just i'm looking at the numbers there and i'm looking at the numbers here and none of them match and you'd think that there'd be a a big journalistic effort to sort of make this discrepancy make sense you would wouldn't you i just don't know how maybe people are on vacation i don't know you think that's what it is they're, they're on vacation. They really want to look into the question of. I mean, states don't even have to worry about where this money goes until 2026. Like, there's plenty of money in the state coffers, the stuff, yeah. stuff that was distributed to states and, and localities. Yeah. They don't even have to account for it for another three years, four years. Anyway, so uh, I, I figured that we should we should we should point out that the covid era um, is over, except if you're like me and you have to get on a, on a, on a subway train every day and dodge psychotic people who are ruining, you know, ruining the experience for everyone. 
Uh, it's bad. It's bad down there. I don't know how it is in other cities. Is there any but, enforcement um, mechanism or is it just norms? Preferred there's enforcement. There are, there are there are cops on subway platforms now all, all over the place. I mean, um, and I've been on two trains in four days that were stopped in stations because there were disruptive people that had to be dealt with somewhere or other elsewhere on the train um which means you know they have to like they they stop the train they open the doors and then they they wait for the cops to get to the platform in time to deal with whoever it is that they have to deal with and i mean you do not want that job because the people who are disruptive on these platforms these are not you know like teenage muggers who are being you know who are being difficult and 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 then a Bernie gets like figure, you know, shoots them. Uh, these are uh, psychopaths and, you know, uh, vagrants. And um, they are often doing unspeakable physical things that in front of other people that, you know, talk about norm breaking. There's also this and general so political liability. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but it's relevant to this COVID relief talk about waste, fraud and abuse, which I know is like something that politicians like to say when they don't actually want to pay for what they want to pay for they bring that up as somehow some some loophole that can be closed that can fund their massive sprawling program and and usually it's very minimal to when you actually can find waste fraud and abuse and when you can find it the return on investment isn't that great because you have to spend a whole lot of money to track the stuff down and recoup it and prosecute the people who are um uh, bending or violating the the rules but there has been spectacular theft of all this COVID money, which you might expect from a $6 trillion spending spree, but hundreds of billions of dollars, according to prosecutors and taxpayer funds have been misappropriated by people who didn't deserve it. And it's funding their lifestyles. And that's the sort of populist issue that can really resonate if someone was able to harness it. Oh, don't you keep, keep your, keep your flame burning because uh, if there is a transfer of power in the House and the Senate in 2022, there will be these investigations. And I want to point out that, uh, you know, we uh, one of the great leaders in American history was created by the fact that during World War II, the most popular war in American history or maybe in world history, there was a serious investigation into waste, fraud, and abuse in government spending relating to the war effort, chaired by a then obscure senator named Harry S. Truman, whose leadership of the committee is what led Franklin Delano Roosevelt to ditch Henry Wallace and make Harry Truman his vice presidential nominee in 1944. And that commission was there because it was considered a patriotic duty to ensure that people didn't, it wasn't even war profiteering. It was more like this waste, fraud, and abuse stuff that people sort of know about, uh, funnily enough, from reading like Catch-22, you know, and the characters in Catch, the, whoever that is, Milo Minderbinder, who, you know, steals everything on the base. And if you think Republicans aren't going to go into this or a very, you know, rational, sensible, and um, ambitious Republican can't talk Mitch McConnell into a committee that studies this $6 trillion in new spending as a result of the corona to see where it went and what lessons are to be learned from that. And if I were Tom Cotton or Marco Rubio or somebody like that, 
That is a committee I would want to be on. That is a committee I would want to start. And I would want to see Democrats complain uh, about how uh, they were just, you know, trying to investigate, you know, unfairly, you know, good people who wanted to do good things. Like, that's a very important effort. The, the, um, um, an, um, uh, an amount of money that has never been seen in federal spending before happened in the space of basically 14 months um, and uh, and enormous amounts, I'm sure, was wasted. And there were there was a lot of fraud and all of that. And watch for that. Watch this space. Because uh, I, I think there's every reason to understand that Democrats don't want investigations into that because they think it will discredit their public health officials and they'll be start talking about the CDC and Fauci and all that. So no help to them. And um, this is where you go, then should go. And it's good governance. And it'll be interesting to see how the Google types at places like the Post and the, the Times and all of that handle the fact that this is something that should be done, but will be viewed as illegitimate because, of course, Republicans will be doing it. Anyway, with that, we will bring this to a close. Uh, we'll be back with you tomorrow for Abe Noah and Christina. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.